1: Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us today. I'm just going to tell you right up front, uh, you'll want to bookmark my website, thebryanhideshow.com. Reason being, you'll find my show notes there. Every time I do an episode, I publish the show notes there so you can uh, follow up and access the sources that I'm accessing and check it out for yourself. I don't expect you to take my word for anything. And uh, frankly, I don't always have time to get to all the different uh, Articles and stories and things I've pulled together for, you know, a given hour. So there there are some bonus features for those who want to log on to the show.com. You'll also find, of course, uh, a, a little uh, homage to my sponsors, including Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, as well as Monticello College. I hope you'll take the time to click on those links, give them some feedback, let them know, hey, I heard about you, heard about you through Brian's show and let them know their message is re- reaching your ears. Well, I hope you're doing well. It's, uh, it's still early in February, but uh, there's a lot taking place, so much so that it, there's a degree of difficulty right now in, in trying to pick what are the most important things that I could be sharing with you. I think this is what the military refers to as a target-rich environment. There's a lot of stuff. Most of it's pretty relevant. Um, And so it's just a matter now of, okay, what shall we talk about? I have a little rule of thumb that I like to use in selecting topics in that at the end of the day or at the end of the hour of the, the program, you know, at the end of each episode, I would love for you to be more sure about who you are and what you stand for. Then I want you to be sure about, boy, I'm mad about that person, and I hate them, and I hate this, and I'm angry about that. So my my goal isn't to stir up uh, fear or anger, although I'm willing to face some hard truths along the way. But more importantly, I need you to know who you are and what you stand for. So with that in mind, let's dive right in. I think it's pretty safe to say that we learn more from our mistakes than we do from our successes. Now, to some people, that's going to sound like a cop out. Okay, so you you made a mistake. No, um, and and maybe the way I'm using this, the context in which I'm using this, is going to make some people angry, because I'm going to jump right into an article from Alex R. Knight III. We had him on the show here a few weeks back. He has an article called "What Donald Trump Has Shown Us All." Wait a minute, are you referring to Donald Trump as a mistake? I don't know. I suppose, but it's I think it's more important that uh, we we learn from. His mistakes and maybe the mistakes of uh, the voting public who suppose that if we can just get this guy into office, you know, he's going to turn things around. He's going to write the ship of state and, and start sailing it in the, in the correct direction. And it didn't quite turn out that way. And I'm not putting all the blame at the, the feet of uh, Donald Trump, nor is Alex Knight. Here's what he says. He says it was a fluke, really a case of the enemy having their guard down that enabled Donald J. Trump to navigate his way to presidential victory in 2016 to begin with. He says, personally, I chalk it up to overconfidence on the part of the establishment, a smug certainty that in such an entrenched politically connected public figure as former first lady and secretary of state, Hillary Clinton could easily wipe an outspoken billionaire entrepreneur turned TV personality off the map without much rigging of the system. But of course they were wrong. And he cites a recent short article from Thomas DiLorenzo, one I shared with you just a couple of weeks ago, that spells out what happened next as well or better than Alex says he ever could. So he says, I'm going to quote an excerpt here to illustrate my next points. And it begins with statements made at Trump's inauguration, January 20th, 2017. Do you remember these quotes? Quote, we are transferring power from Washington, D.C. and giving it back to you, the American people. He also said, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government while the people have borne the cost. And Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. And the establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Now, Thomas DiLorenzo pointed out, he said this surrounded by the entire Washington establishment on Inauguration Day. You wonder where that uh, that deep, deep hatred for Trump comes from? That's it, DiLorenzo says. That's why they spent every waking hour of every day for the past four years spewing vitriolic hate at Trump and his supporters. It doesn't matter if he didn't achieve the power of or the transfer, rather, of power to the people. Merely saying such a thing in public was enough to ignite the everlasting hatred of the hordes of serpentine peons and psychopaths who populate the Washington swamp. The political parasites. For the first time since out of mine we finally saddled with a president who was not one of them. Who wasn't playing on their team, who had run for office in the first place, not for his own self-emolument or to advance the interest of banking cartels and foreign governments, but to, quote, save America. And Alex Knight says you hurl as many rocks as you, at that as you will from a purist libertarian standpoint. Harp about Trump's obvious ego and narcissism. It still doesn't erase the fact That he was the first American president since at least JFK, and we all know what happened to him, to come to the Oval Office deciding not to play ball with the status quo. Now he's clear on this. Alex Knight says Trump was and is no large-scale liberator, no voluntarist, no market anarchist, no Ron Paul on a dose of loud and defiant steroids. But he says, observe the uproar, how riotous and relentless his enemies became at even the statist modicum of reform measures that Trump introduced and pushed. America first. No more kowtowing to communist China. No more footing of NATO's military bills. Reduced participation in UN-led international commitments, organizations and programs, scrapping of the Paris Climate Accord and anti-US trade deals. and end to the war against petroleum fuels. Repeal of reams of domestic business regulations, tax cuts, other than the ludicrous bump stock ban, support for gun rights in the NRA, a drawdown of troops overseas and foreign conflict, the makings of a possible peace deal with North Korea. And so he says, so what did they do about it? Those who saw Donald Trump from the very get go as a completely unacceptable threat to their decades long domination of everyday Americans and the globe at large. Well, he says, whether not unlike 9-11, you believe that COVID-19 was a coincidence or a pandemic, this much remains certain. In classic Rom Emanuel fashion, never let a good crisis go to waste. It was used as a vehicle to further, lamb, to further lambast Trump or to destroy the economy his policies helped make possible and rig the 2020 election in a way they wished they'd had the foresight to do in 2016. Be damned with their alleged sacred cow democracy. To hell with of the people, by the people, for the people. And let's not even dignify the asinine concept of consent of the governed. The establishment was absolutely determined to reinstall one of their own in the person of Joe Biden, who for sheer evil and insidiousness remains unmatched since at least the time of LBJ. Another time, incidentally, of tumult and division. Although Alex Knight says, I would argue that in 2021 the stakes are much higher, and far more serious. So what did Donald Trump show us? That his quest was a chaotic, even naive one, the supposition that one man of honest intent, even if that man accedes to the highest political position on earth, can effect meaningful, lasting, positive change and not be destroyed by the system in the, prog- in the process. The Nancy Pelosi's, the Chuck Schumer's, the Adam Schiff's are far too numerous in the swamp to ever be rooted out. The swamp is, after all, of them, intrinsic to the nature of government itself. You might as well try to remove the salt from the oceans or the oxygen from the atmosphere. Maybe Trump realizes this now. But Alex Knight says, what of the millions and millions of everyday Americans out there paying 40% of everything they earn for the rest of their lives to a cabal that regulates them to the gills, tracks and spies on them, lies to them routinely, sells them out to foreign interests, wages war against free speech and gun ownership, and then, on top of it all, rigs any election result that even slightly threatens this arrangement? For those who may have previously felt that having a mere attempt at changing their rulers every couple of years made all the rest of of everything else tolerable to some degree, he asks, what now? Now, Alex Knight says, many no doubt are thinking violent revolution is inevitable, since obviously even peaceful facsimiles of revolution have been rendered impossible. The system is now openly, unabashedly nothing but a sham. And he says, I can't predict what the future holds except to say it isn't looking good. Not from any rational metric, and it only promises to get worse, rapidly even. He says the American people could, on the other hand, abandon the idea of government altogether. I actually kind of like his take here. It would deprive those sadistic parasites of their power and influence once and for all. We'd be free. That would actually drain the swamp. (laughs) Finally, after thousands of years of playing these stupid pointless games over and over and over ad infinitum... But he ends with a little tongue-in-cheek poke and says, I've never been real good at holding my breath anyway. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. Lots of other great stuff at everythingvoluntary.com. That's where I got this article.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: You know, if you are a a business owner, you have to wear a lot of hats. You have to develop expertise in a lot of areas that you probably wouldn't have otherwise. One of those areas is you've got to be a commercial insurance specialist. So you don't have time to drop your drop everything and run to school or, you know, get trained on being a, a commercial insurance specialist. Why don't you reach out to my friends at uh, Landmark Risk Management and Insurance? There's a handy little contact link right there at the bottom of today's show notes at the Brian com. Talk to my friend Steve Burgess and his amazing team. Their job, plain and simple, is to be the insurance experts to help you insofar as you can be the insurance expert for what you need for your business. Look, they're really good at what they do. They're very conscientious, and they are, they are definitely a team you would want to have on your side. Hit them up if that's if you're looking for some commercial insurance or you're just looking for advice about what you currently have, talk to my friends at Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. So when it comes to finding things to talk about on a day-to-day basis, I mentioned in the last segment, there's there's way more than I can possibly fit into, you know, a, a two-hour broadcast and podcast on a daily basis. I, I, I have to leave a lot of stuff aside. One thing that I do, and this is not to irritate you or to otherwise you know, make you uncomfortable, I like to seek out different voices who are coming at this from a totally different angle than I am. Caitlin Johnstone is one of those voices. I mean, I, I can't tell you exactly where she falls on the political spectrum. I'm guessing it's somewhere pretty far to the left of me. But doggone it, this girl makes sense on a lot of things and and i point this out this is this is not to demonstrate how open-minded i am but i i think we forget sometimes you can obtain truth from pretty much any source and that includes people who maybe don't line up with you ideologically i think i think we rely on this way too much you know thinking well i you don't know they got to check all the right boxes and i like this person except for this or except for that it's okay to disagree and sometimes you'll find those areas where you have common ground, they, that's really solid. That's where you should be building your alliances. Well, Caitlin Johnstone, I, I receive her emails on a regular basis, has, uh, she has a feature that she calls notes from the edge of the, na- of the uh, narrative matrix. And this is just kind of like random observations on the passing scene, little snippets, easily digestible. thought I'd share a few of those with you just because I, I wanted you to, to see through the eyes of someone who's, who's not coming, from it, coming at it from my point of view, you know, from a, uh, I don't even know what I would call myself, classical, liberal, limited government, you know, religious point of view. She nonetheless has a really good take, one that's worth considering. This is uh, when she talks about, uh, the, she's talking about the, the Black Lives Matter protests and, and the Black Lives Matter movement. And I bring this up because I, maybe you saw, in, in, with all the bizarre stuff going on around us, one of the most bizarre headlines, Black Lives Matter has been nominated for a, for the Nobel Peace Prize. And I just, you know, I, I think back to when Barack Obama got his uh, Nobel Peace Prize. And I think, okay, there's another system that's just rigged. I think he ordered more drone strikes and had, uh, had more uh, military engagement going on under him. Very interventionist, but by gosh, Here's your Nobel Peace Prize. And somebody who was was in a very good mood uh, within a few days of that actually, you know, put up free Nobel Peace Prize with oil change, you know, on their uh, garage uh, marquee. Pretty funny stuff. Here's what Caitlin Johnstone says. She says, remember when Americans shook the earth with massive protests, demanding an end to the police state and the entire liberal establishment just kept saying, I hear you. I agree with you. And then did absolutely nothing to even reduce police brutality. Well, she says it's important to remember such lessons. People would ask her, why are you supporting Black Lives Matter, Caitlin? Don't you see all the corporations and corporate Dems support it? Why would they do that if it didn't serve them? And here's her explanation. She says this is why they did it. Empty words of support can defuse a situation far easier than opposition. Imagine if all the plutocrats, pundits, and politicians had just yelled at the BLM protesters and admonished them to stop it would only have turned people against them with far more aggression, and it would have exposed the fact that they are the enemy. She says it's much more effective to say, I hear you, I agree with you, with no intention of taking any real action. And she says, really, this is all institutions like the Democratic Party do, or exist to do. Defuse left populism and crush grassroots activism, not with opposition, but with empty words of agreement that have no intention of action behind them. They're just a bottomless pit that tricks people into pouring their energy into it, thereby stopping all leftward movement. That's an interesting take. Interesting. A kid who doesn't want to clean their room, she says, will tell their parents, no, I don't want to. A very clever kid who doesn't want to clean their room will say, yes, I'll get on that right away, and then enjoy hours of peace and relaxation without parental nagging and without cleaning. By the way, I've got a kid who's really good at doing this. It's the exact same way with the powerful. It's much more efficacious for them to pretend to be on your side than expose the fact that they're not. In the end, the result is the same. The kid doesn't clean their room, but they don't get the kind of pushback they'd get if they said no. So what's the lesson here? Okay, this was a huge takeaway for me, and this is where, again, Caitlin Johnstone and I may not line up on a whole lot of things philosophically, but she is really good at ferreting out the truth, and here's one of the best ones I've seen. Manipulators are good at manipulation. The people who make their way to the top in a corrupt system are manipulators. You can't take their words at face value. You mustn't mistake vapid placation for victory. They'll happily give you a mountain of words in exchange for your real treasure. And she says they're so used to manipulating Americans into believing narratives that wildly differ from reality. They were like, "Well, tell them $1400 is 2000. <laughs> they won't notice." So she says that uh, the world would be greatly improved if Americans became far more powerful and their government-slash-military-slash-media became far less powerful. I should probably point out here, Caitlin Hales from uh, Australia, so she's writing this as an Aussie rather than than an American. She talks about uh, Yemen alone being a sufficient argument for the dismantling of the entire U.S. Centralized Power Alliance. And she says, to be clear, Yemen isn't just some tragedy that we're passively witnessing. Civilians are being deliberately, deliberately targeted and starved with the backing of the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Canada, and France. Our governments are helping to inflict this horror upon innocents. And it may get worse. And she says, a world order that can create something as horrific as the atrocities in Yemen or the unforgivable Iraq invasion is not a world order that will lead the world in a good direction. The facts are in. The U.S.-led world order must end. Now, to this, people will push back and say, you hate all U.S. politicians, Caitlin. You can't, say, you can't name a single one you like. And she agrees. She says, that's like wanting me to pick a favorite Nazi leader. It's a system which only elevates buttheads who will cooperate with a machine that's fueled by human blood. You just don't see how ugly it is yet. She says anti-imperialism makes you look like a radical because it makes you reject even the politicians who are considered radical in mainstream discourse since they are all imperialists. But she says in reality, there's nothing radical about opposing the mass slaughter of innocents. It's just being a normal human being. Basic human sanity is often painted as radical because most people have no understanding of just how bat guano insane our current world order is. By the way, she also points out the surest way to get rich in media is to spread lies which serve the interests of the powerful. The surest way to get labeled a grifter is to do exactly the opposite of this. She says it's not enough to reject mainstream politics. We need to reject mainstream culture as well. The propagandists understand that politics is downstream from culture, and we should too. The culture manufacturers in New York and L.A. are not your friend. They are an extension of the empire. We who oppose the empire must reject its manufactured culture with the same disgust with which we reject its political lackeys and news media. We must create our own culture to outshine the manufactured garbage they are shoving down everyone's throats. Did you catch that? You don't ask them for permission to change. You make the change. We'll come back to this in a
0: few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: I have been sharing with you a a little uh, collection of thoughts from Caitlin Johnstone. I get her emails on a pretty regular basis. She's pretty hardcore, and if, if potty language offends you, you, know, you, you, might, you might find some reason to, to not appreciate to how colorful she can get with her language. But doggone it, this, this young lady has a really solid take on things. And I only point this out because she comes at it from um, what I'm going to guess would be a, a slightly different angle than, than a lot of my listeners would traditionally come from. But it doesn't mean, well, she's entirely wrong. Just because we may disagree on a certain issue or two doesn't mean she cannot see the truth. This is something that I found very interesting. In fact, I found this super relevant. She says, if you want normal people to listen to an idea, you've got to make it easy to understand and you've got to make it interesting. No normal human being going about their life has any incentive to listen to you unless you do these things. And this is the crazy part that we sometimes forget, the onus isn't on them, it's on you. So telling people to read theory doesn't work. How narcissistic would you have to be to think you can just tell some stranger, well, why don't you read Marx or Lenin or whatever, and they'll go, well, that complete rando just ordered me to invest my scarce time and energy in this, so I better do it. No, she says, this is our job. And she says, whenever I bring this up, people say stuff like, it's not a popularity contest, Caitlin. And she says, yes, it is. You want your ideas to be more popular than the crappy, self-destructive, soul-crushing, world-destroying ideas which support the status quo. That's not going to happen by itself. It's not enough to be right. You can't save the world just by holding the right beliefs in your obscure corner of the information ecosystem. That's like believing life will reward you if you're a nice person on the inside. Share the ideas. Make them simple. Make them interesting. There is so much wisdom in that short uh, set of paragraphs. I really hope you'll you'll go to the show notes at the and look this one over for yourself. Think about that. It's not enough to be right. you've got to be you've got be a source of light at some level. One more thing here that uh, actually two more quick things that that I wanted to share from her. She said one of the many advantages manipulators have over sincere people is that sincere sincere people have no idea how very, very much better at manipulation a manipulator is than them. In the same way a chess newbie has no understanding of how many skill levels they are below a chess master, that's why it's so important for us to have the humility to know that we can be manipulated and that we can be manipulated in ways we hadn't even thought of, ways we wouldn't think of in a million years because we are not that source of creature or that sort of creature rather. She finishes up here with saying, when you're in an abusive relationship, leaving seems impossible. After you escape, you look back and you see that most of the barriers to leaving, which felt so real at the time, were illusory mental constructs. Well, she says escaping our abusive relationship with our oppressors is going to be like that. Freeing ourselves and creating a healthy world is not impossible. There are no solid walls preventing us from leaving the abusive relationship. The door's not even locked. The only thing holding us in place is mental manipulation via mass media propaganda. In other words, it's all in our head. And there's a terrific picture that she uses to illustrate this point. Of a nice-sized horse standing there, tethered to a lawn chair. I mean, the lawn chair couldn't weigh more than, you know, 10 pounds, tops. But that horse is right there. I'm not going to try and pull that away. Interesting stuff. So, I'm a big believer that uh, robust and honest debate has long been a useful tool for separating truth from error. What happens, though, when the rules of debate no longer work? And maybe, maybe you can understand this in the context of how many people are being deplatformed so they can't even add their voices to the debate. It's a sad truth, but you know a person is effective when they're being targeted to be silenced. And yeah, I'm a little bit bummed. I'm just not that influential. Knock on wood. But so far, nobody has come after me. Nobody seems to see me as much of a threat. Which is good. I'm sure they would at least count me as a radical, but I'm not a dangerous enough radical that somebody needs to, you know, deplatform me. Get me out of there. Cancel him. But I work on it every day. This is Paul Gottfried writing for IntellectualTakeout.org, who says gun rights activist Dana Loesch, Dana Loesch, sorry Dana, for butchering your name, recently complained that she'd been denied the right to respond to her critics on Twitter. That's according to a story reported in the New York Post. Unlike her adversaries, who are free to swing away at her, Loesch is not allowed to use Twitter's fact-checking platform to correct their misstatements. Now, she also has observed that her censors are failing to grasp that a true discussion requires both sides be heard. Even if we don't like what another person is saying, she explains, it's best to allow that person to speak and then respond. Now, Paul Gottfried says, this was hardly the first time I'd heard such a recommendation being communicated to the cancel culture and to those who scorn open discussion. Indeed, some critics seem to think a true dialogue can only take place if we make the nature of debate clear. Unfortunately, those to whom this reminder is addressed really don't care about their critics' arguments. They are shutting down those whose speech clashes with their ideology and political goals. It may therefore be futile to defend open debate by engaging those who have no interest in this activity. A waste of time and energy to bring up values and forms of discussion that the other side totally rejects. And so here's what he recommends. He says it's time to adopt a different course of action. Rather than trying to reason with those who maliciously refuse to listen, it's time to get serious about developing alternative social or alternative electronic media. Rather, those driving leftist cancel culture would be seriously hurt financially if more and more Americans transferred their communications to friendlier providers. Unfortunately, that process is already ongoing. Yet, even while the process is underway, he says. It seems we must deal with the continued hypocrisy of the left, which waffles back and forth in its views, depending on whether it serves their purposes. Juan Williams, January 26th appearance on Fox News is a case in point. He says, I was utterly I was struck by the utterly cynical way in which he defended the electronic media's cancel culture as a proper exercise of the right of private property as Williams had been among the numerous progressives who wanted to criminalize the refusal of a Christian baker in Colorado to provide a cake for a gay wedding. During Williams' defense of high-tech companies that chose to exclude dissenters from using their property, he maintained that it was just and proper to deny both the religious and property rights of the the prosecuted Christian baker. So, gay rights trump other rights for Williams. Where he contemptuously dismissed concerns about both the property and religious rights of the Baker. The defender of Big Te- the defenders rather of Big Tech’s sacred property rights were also conspicuous among those who wanted to mandate transgendered restroom facilities in stores and buildings a few years back. Such an action would have been an obvious, colossal violation of property rights which would have been carried out in the name of LGBT activism. Other egregious state-promoted attempts to trample on property rights have also been embraced by defenders of electronic media giants. In 2005, some of these fair-weather friends of property rights were on board when the Supreme Court made a controversial and, for Paul Gottfried, shocking decision in Kelo versus the city of New London. In this case, the court expanded the government's right of eminent domain to allow the forced sale of private property from its owner to someone whom the state chose to favor. The victim in this instance was a person of very modest means whose home was being handed over to a mall developer to, to further economic development. And this move was permitted because the government claimed that a public use was being served. In the name of increased economic benefit, the managerial state can now take away your property to accommodate its donors. Apparently, your property is not to be protected with the same care as the right of the big tech monopoly to cancel your Twitter or Facebook account. By the way, both the New York Times and the Washington Post, which have been in the vanguard of the defense of high-tech interests, were ecstatic over the Kelo decision. Paul Gottfried says, My stomach churns when I think about those leftists who have never shown the slightest regard for property rights but who now dishonestly defend Big Tech's property right in order to ride roughshod over the rest of us. But listen to his solution here. He says we are not going to dissuade these malefactors of wealth and their minions by talking about the need for open debate. One can only address their duplicity and suppression of free speech by creating alternative media and then urging our friends to shun their tainted services. He says there is no other way forward. I tend to agree. And a good part of my agreement comes from the fact that you are listening to one of those alternative media sources. Wherever you are catching this program, you are catching it in a a platform that is not subject to the whims of, you know, the, the few social or the few big tech, you know, social media justice giants. So I would urge you, When you encounter alternative media like this, if it provides value to you, and only if, I would say get behind it. Tell your friends about it. If you can offer some financial support, do so. Point us to uh, advertisers. Point us to sponsors. People who would, would likewise help make this possible.
0: It can be done. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is the Brian Hyde show. Hey, welcome back to the show.
1: Just want to take a moment here to uh, mention Monticello College. And I really would encourage you to uh, visit the uh, sponsored link in my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is a small school that is doing something that I don't know of, uh, I don't know of any other school in the country. That's that's taking the approach that they are. And in a nutshell, it is a classical liberal arts approach to education combined with useful skills like real manual skills that can translate into uh, helping a person be more self-reliant and able to, you know, take care of their basic needs. Do you know how to build a home? Now, I know there are people, well, I'd have to go to school. I'd have to learn to be a, a, a contractor. Maybe I'd go study architecture. I mean, could, could you make the materials to build your own home, your own greenhouse, to raise farm animals, you know, to have small livestock, or to, to raise your own crops and to feed yourself? I'm thinking things like this are going to become more and more important and apparent to people in the days ahead. But it's so rare to find somebody who's actually taking this model of education that's not about, you know, let's indoctrinate the kids into what is woke and, you know, to make sure they're properly concerned for the environment and whatever else is politically expedient at the time. And unfortunately, there's a lot of that that creeps into our public education system by virtue of the fact that the government is what's running the system. So whatever the prevailing attitudes are of government in this time, you better believe they are going to find their way into education. Which brings us to a little bit of a quandary. I mean, do do you want your kids to be taught that? or Are there differing values that you feel would be better taught to your kids? Whose responsibility is it? And I'm not trying to scare anybody, and I'm certainly not trying to tell you, boy, pull your kids out and put them in homeschooling. But for some people, that is a viable alternative. Because what they want their kids to grow up understanding is they're being taught the exact opposite a lot of the time that they're sitting in the classroom. And I'm talking, you know, especially the, the, the social uh, education that goes on there. Saw a great article today from Annie Holmquist. This is on intellectualtakeout.org. Teaching children to be unbiased is impossible. So if people say, well, you just want your kids at home so you can indoctrinate them. Yes, as opposed to having strangers do it for me? Will I go work? Ah, uh, I don't know, you know. Uh, they, whose kids are they anyway? Well, here's how how Annie approaches the problem. She says, a comic from NPR caught my eye the other day. Promising to tell parents how to raise informed, active citizens, the scrawled images and text stressed the importance of civics and made several recommendations on how parents can work instruction of this topic into everyday life. The suggestions range from using fun and games to talking at the dinner table to walks on city streets. Teach your children the fine art of tolerant disagreement. Get involved in your community, the comic encouraged. The comic also told parents not to gloss over the difficult parts of our nation's past, claiming that presenting kids with an honest version of history will connect them with facts and prevent them from feeling alienated when they learn the less-than-rosy truth. She says, given the source, astute observers would immediately suspect NPR would prefer parents instill their children with a progressive mindset. Yet she says, suppose we give NPR the benefit of the doubt for a moment and we take those, per- those points at a surface level. Is it possible to pass along neutral principles to children devoid of bias or personal viewpoints? Hardly. Now Annie Holmquist points out here, bias is frowned upon today. And evidence of bias in its wrong form may even get one canceled in polite society. Yet the fact is, everyone is biased. Liberal, conservative, atheist, Christian, this fact, however, should not make us retreat into a neutral void of nothingness, unwilling to influence or train our children in certain directions. Doing so is not only unlawful, but also impossible, argued American theologian Robert Louis Dabney. It's both the privilege and the duty of parents, writes Dabney in his 19th century essay, Parental Responsibilities, to impose the principles and the creed which he has sincerely adopted as the truth for himself upon the spirit of his child. Here's what he says, quote, Some men it is known vainly prate of a supposed obligation to leave the minds of their children independent and unbiased until they are mature enough to judge and choose for themselves. But a moment's thought shows that this is unlawful, as impossible. No man can avoid impressing his own practical principles on his child. If he refrains from words, he does it inevitably by his example. End quote. Now Annie Holmquist says reading these words raises serious questions for parents specifically and for responsible adults in general. For starters, she says, Can we honestly say we even have principles and a creed to pass along to the next generation? In an age where truth is relative, it's easy to drift back and forth upon the tides of popular opinion. Such lack of conviction denudes us of a purpose and a cause to fight for. Passing along to children only the example of a meaningless life. Yet what if one does have his principles and creeds established in his own mind? Is it okay to pass those along to one's children? Is it not better for them to be open to many sources to choose their own way? Well, she says, Dabney again has an answer to these questions Suggesting that if we don't do the influencing, someone else will. Someone whose mindset may be directly opposed to our own. Quote, the only way to prevent the dictation, as it has been stigmatized, is to banish the child absolutely from the parent's society and protection. And thus to be recreant to every duty of the parent. Again, if he could avoid every impress upon the soul of his child, others would not refrain. One thing is certain this young and plastic soul will take impress from some wither, if not from the appointed and heaven-ordained hand of his parent, then from some other irresponsible hand of man or evil angel. One might as well speak of immersing an open vessel in the ocean and having it remain empty, as of having a youthful soul grow up in a society unbiased until it's qualified to elect its own creed most wisely. Wow. Wow. Oh, end quote, by the way. There are many voices, says Annie Holmquist, be they at school, in the media, our politicians and celebrities which seek to influence our children. They want kids to adopt their own viewpoint, which more often than not is a position of atheistic Marxism ready to tear apart principles of traditional faith, family, and morality. If we want to preserve such principles, she says, then we must not only be well-equipped to defend and practice them in our own lives, but we must also instill them thoroughly in the young hearts and minds hurtling toward adulthood. Here's an ancient Jewish dictum from the Pentateuch that says it best, And these words with which I I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. I'm just going to ask you to consider for a second. Has that advice survived and, and, and passed the test of time? Because to me, that still makes sense, even though those words were, were uh, issued many, many, many years ago. And any Holmquist reminds us we've forgotten such practices in our day and age. Wouldn't we all be better off if we resurrected them? Now, I wish I could tell you, yes, you know, I've been a sterling example of this and never missed an opportunity to have these kinds of conversations with my kids. But the fact is, I did miss a lot of opportunities. Now, in spite of this, and probably solely due to my wife's supreme efforts, uh, my kids have grown up to be good people and are growing up to be good people. I'm very proud of who they are and what they're becoming and i was a little bit late to the party but i did learn the value of having these kinds of discussions with them and making sure that they know it's okay to disagree with what someone is is teaching you now there's a fine line though and you know i think this is going to be different for each person um i haven't taught my kids to go out there and be activists you know you you defy at every uh, at every turn I've definitely taught them to question a lot of things, and they do. And when, when something kind of hinky comes up, you know, uh, my daughter was telling me about uh, her English teacher is trying to get the kids to write, and it's, and it's pretty clear. that The teacher's getting these kids to write about things from a very progressive point of view. And I think, man, when I was 12 years old, I don't think I would have picked up on that. Of course, I had a little bit different focus in life when I was 12 years old. I was just like, when are we going to go pheasant hunting? When can I go out and go fishing? I was you know, looking out the window daydreaming more often than not. My grades, by the way, reflected that. But I'm happy that I have a 12-year-old daughter who can recognize when someone is trying to steer her in a particular direction. And thankfully, she's got her mom's stubbornness, so they've, they've got their work cut out for them. So here's my best advice for you. Are you looking to to make a difference? Are you looking to move the needle in a positive direction? Start with the people around you. Start with your example. What does the way you live your life teach the people around you about what matters most to you? If you want to have impact, trust me, you're having impact. Now we just want to have the right kind of impact.